Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of opera and the national boards. I'm Susan Bigger. Today we're talking about public safety and what that means for all members of the community. We want to explore how the regulator of health practitioners contributes to the safety of the community and how do we ensure safety for our more vulnerable communities. These are big topics, but fortunately today I have with me a few big thinkers with plenty of experience. So we welcome Jill Callister, who is chair of the agency management committee for the national scheme that is for opera and the national boards. Welcome, Jill. Thanks, Susan. Could you do two things for our listeners? One, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And two, maybe you could just describe the role of the Agency Management Committee? I have been chairing the Agency Management Committee for close to a year and a half now. The majority of my background and experience is as a senior public servant in the Victorian public service, mostly across the areas of health social services and education over a a long period of time until the end of 2018 and more recently I've taken on a role as CEO of a community-based national mental health organisation. The Agency Management Committee is best understood really as the board that oversees uh, and governs, if you like, the national scheme and that really happens in partnership with the national boards. So we oversee the operations of the scheme, the functioning of APRA itself, but there is this highly relational component of the Agency Management Committee, which is its relation to the national boards uh, that essentially partner in the operation of the scheme. So quite relevant is our second guest, Martin Fletcher, who is the Chief Executive Officer of APRA. Uh, Welcome, Martin. Can you tell us something about yourself? I I like to start off by saying I'm not a registered health practitioner and I'm not a lawyer, uh, but what I come with is a a background in healthcare management, healthcare policy and healthcare leadership with a particular focus on quality of healthcare and patient safety. And in fact, my job prior to coming to APRA uh, just over 10 years ago, uh, was leading the National Patient Safety Agency in the National Health Service in the UK. And I like to think that I think that background in patient safety has been a really useful lens to bring to the leadership of the work of APRA. And that's a great lead into what we're talking about today, which is patient or public safety. Martin, you wanna start by talking about what you think it means in practice to have public safety Uh, as the core aim for APRA and the National Boards? From my perspective, Susan, I think the absolute core focus of a regulatory system is to act in the interests of the community and to really um, act in the public interest as well. I think sometimes there's a bit of a misconception of regulation that it's there for the professions it regulates rather than the community we serve. But I think for me then, talking about public safety, Patient safety as being core of what we do is that recognition that we're here to serve the community and to make sure that our values, our purpose and our ways of working absolutely reflect that commitment to playing our part fully in ensuring that care is as safe as it can be. Jill, do you have any thoughts on on this sort of core aim of public safety, what it looks like in practice? I think Martin made a good point. Um, The broader contextual point I'd make is that APRA as the regulator is not 
solely responsible for public safety in healthcare. Um, and I think that is one of the differences between APRA as a regulator in this complex system of healthcare and some other industries where regulation, um, you know, in some industries, regulation is seen as, as, as having to monitor um, providers of a particular service or, or product who, who will always sort of do the bare minimum. I think the difference here is that you've got this whole complex uh, range of um, codes of conduct, professional, <clears throat> excuse me, professional standards, professional um, training and education that not only brings practitioners into their first registered role, but then continues through the course of their career. You've got ombudsmen and complaint bodies, you've got employers, you've got all sorts of organisations um, as part of what we broadly call a health system, both public and private, that are there to, I think, try and uphold high standards of public safety. So I wouldn't want people to think we're the only ones there at the at the wall protecting the public because I think the system's built to protect the public and the great majority of um, employers, providers want to provide safe and high quality care. Absolutely. And maybe there's a, a piece there about thinking about how do we work together with those organizations to do that. Martin, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think to pick up on that point, Susan, and just to build on the point that Jill's made. So I think one of the things that's really important when we think about the role of ARPA and the national boards in public protection is this question of how we work as part of that wider system that Jill's outlined to ensure public and patient safety. And I would argue that we are a better regulator to the extent that we are actually able to work as part of that system. And that has, I think, implications for making sure that we're clear on our role we're clear on the roles of others and that we've got good communication and information flow and engagement with all of those people, you know, with a common interest ultimately in assuring public and patient safety. So I can imagine there's some sticky points in this, Martin. Do you want to speak to some of the challenges? So Susan, I think one of the challenges we face is that what regulation does is often not well understood by the community. And so I think we've got a real challenge to build awareness and understanding of what our role, what our part is in that system that we've talked about. And if I can give you the example of our national registers, uh, at the moment, it's possible for you to be able to search the registration status of every single one of the 760,000 registered practitioners we have across the 16 professions in the national scheme. But I would say that if you went and asked somebody in the street about the national register, they wouldn't know it existed, let alone have a view of how they might use it in the context of choices they're making about their own healthcare. So I think we've got a real challenge about raising that awareness and understanding and helping people to use the information we have you know, in the example I've given in the National Register to actually help them make the choices they want to make about accessing safe, high quality care. Martin, if we're following through on that idea, then why would someone do that? What, what, what does it help? How does it help them to go to the public register? Well, it would tell them for a start whether their practitioner is a registered practitioner and we've got examples. And in fact, we have offences under our law where people purport to be registered when they're not. It would tell you about their qualifications 
about their background, when they first qualified, what languages they spoke, where they graduated from. But importantly, it would actually also tell you if there were any restrictions on their practice. So one of the things that boards can do if there's a concern about something that a health practitioner has done is put requirements on their registration. So um, the, the majority of those are published on the National Register. So it would actually also give you information as a consumer of healthcare about whether the practitioner you were seeing was subject to any additional requirements. And again, that might mean that you still want to see them, but at least you'd go, you know, with, with, with eyes open in terms of what those additional requirements are. Yeah, but you're probably right in saying that many members of the public wouldn't have any idea that there's that vast source of information for them. I think that's right. And it's interesting when we talk to regulators in other countries, one of the things they think is most impressive about the regulatory scheme we have in Australia is the fact that we have that single source nationally for all of those professionals. Uh, in most other countries, you have to go to multiple different places to get that information. So I think it's an incredibly valuable information asset for the Australian community. But I think we've got to do more to help people understand that it exists and how to use it. Another challenge I think that's emerging for us with this blurring of public and private in uh, social media being so pervasive and ever present, uh, Twitter and Facebook and all these different things where people are expressing both professional and private personal views, but they're, they're expressing them in the public realm, so to speak. And, uh, you know, sometimes they are views that, from a public interest point of view, would not be conducive to good conduct of that um, profession. Um, so, for example, if you have a, a, a health professional who um, expresses views that could be construed as, as very sexist and, and even perhaps very um, in support of family violence in some way, um, or certainly not against it, who's also in a profession that is likely to be dealing as a first responder with victims of family violence, where does the role of the regulator come in there in terms of what the public could reasonably expect the regulator to take a view about in relation to expression of those views? And, you know, is it one small comment that gets passed on in a small group of people on on uh, social media but then makes its way to the public realm or is it much more um regular and um vociferous comments that that really are quite challenging and 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 suggest very very hard line views i mean i think these are really difficult and vexed issues but they are issues that APRA has been challenged with and i think will continue to be challenged with and this issue of the public interest and private and personal rights is a, a increasingly blurry one yeah and the public has increasingly strong views about that i think one of the challenges is helping people that want to raise concerns about um, a health practitioner understand what the role of the regulator is um, in relation to other bodies that might need to look at the issue. So sometimes people have a complaint about how they've been treated by a health, health practitioner and it's a heartfelt complaint and they have experienced it, you know, they've, they've had an experience that has affected them in some way and they want somebody to hear it and they want some sort of action often. 
Um, but it's often not at the threshold that a regulator should be involved. Um, and so I feel often what we end up with out of um, notifications is an unhappy complainant and an unhappy practitioner because the complainant felt they weren't heard because perhaps it was seen to be no further action after some initial investigation or initial looking at it. And the practitioner feels unhappy because they were looked at and examined and went through a process um, and feel that they, they were unfairly scrutinised. You, you kind of end up in a lose-lose sometimes. Um, and because it's so also private, you can't necessarily divulge all information to each party all the way, all along the way. And because you are dealing with these very personal experiences of somebody's um, interchange, someone's um, relationship with a healthcare provider, which by definition is often quite a private experience and sometimes quite an invasive experience, and often an experience that happens at a time when we're quite vulnerable, we're in pain, we're unsure, we're anxious about some sort of condition. There's lots of emotion around it all. And so unlike, you know, if you're regulating the banks, sure, when we saw the Banking Royal Commission, we saw um, awful individual stories of people losing their farms and houses because of um, um, kind of blanket decisions being taken by the banks. But at the end of the day, we're all able to sort of point to this big aggregate thing called a bank and say they behaved badly. This is a much more individualised personal experience, one by one, practitioner by practitioner, complainant by complainant, event by event. Getting that balance right so that you've done due diligence, you have been a proper regulator, not a complaint handler, um, in, in quite the same way, say, an ombudsman is uh, or a health services commissioner, um, but in a way that people felt that they understood what happened, I, f I think that balance is quite hard to achieve. Well, I think the other challenge here is this question of where, where does the public interest lie ultimately in terms of transparency of regulation? And I think if I look back at over 10 years of working with APRA, what I've seen, I think, is a journey towards far greater transparency. But I think there's a very real debate about what the right balance is between, on the one hand, the public right to know, if you like, and on the other hand, the privacy and confidentiality rights of an individual practitioner. And there isn't a right or wrong answer. I think there's a balance to be struck there. But if I was to look at an overall trend, I would say it's a trend towards greater openness. It's hard to see that regulation would be continuing, would be trending towards greater secrecy. But I think we've still got a way to go because I think many people would still view the regulatory system is something that's quite opaque um, and something that they, you know, as I said earlier, I think people don't well understand the role of regulation, but even if they seek to engage with it, I think at times they would find us being quite opaque and not, not entirely sure who does what and how it works. There's a lot of moving parts and, you know, it can seem very bureaucratic and very big. So I think this, this move towards greater transparency, but recognising we've got to get this balance right um, with the privacy and confidentiality of individual practitioners, I think is an important challenge for us as well. So if you're enjoying this podcast, you might want to listen to one of our other ones. For example, Professor Kieran Walsh speaking about balancing process and purpose. The challenge for regulators is to sort of try to keep focused on their overall mission, purpose, whilst dealing with the processes that they have to run to, to be a regulator, to register people, to make sure that education is fit for purpose, 
and to deal with concerns, problems or complaints about individual practitioners, which can become consuming. There's an expression, you know, the, the, the process becomes the purpose. To go back to this concept that we started with around the idea of public safety as the core aim of opera, I understand there are some recent policy directions that may change that or may refocus that. Can you explain those for us a bit, Martin? So just to give you a bit of background what a policy direction is. So um, the work of ARPA and the national boards, which, you know, shorthand the national scheme, ultimately is responsible to all of the health ministers in Australia who meet together periodically and provide, if you like, the, the oversight at the highest level of the work of the scheme. They don't get involved in individual matters, but the overall policy directions of the schemes. And one of the things they can do in that role is actually put a policy direction to us that is about what they think is important for us to reflect in our work. And when they do that, that's binding on us. So we, we're, we, the ARPA and the boards are required to act on that. So in this case, we've had a policy direction that has sought to really emphasise the importance of the focus of patient safety as our paramount focus in the scheme. And I think the thing that's different about that, because you're right to say that has always been our focus, is that it calls out the need for a particular focus on vulnerable groups in the community when we're thinking about patient and public safety. So who are the most vulnerable members of community? I mean, are, have they specified uh, where, where that focus is meant to be? And how do you make sure that they're heard and that they're engaged and they're protected? That seems like a, a pretty big task. We're currently in the middle of um, two Royal Commissions into fairly vulnerable groups in our community, um, the Aged Care Royal Commission and the Royal Commission into People Care of People with Disabilities. And, um, you know, they are both groups that, for different reasons, often need greater amounts of health care and at the same time often have um, difficulties accessing health care. And clearly, in the case of aged care, and you only have to look at what happened in COVID uh, in Melbourne in particular, and to some extent as well in New South Wales, um, how the structure of aged care made it so easy for the virus to get into a very vulnerable population. And sadly, a, a, a number of people, a large number of people died from it. Um, and, and so I think, um, I don't think it's the structure of aged care's health care that caused that problem. But I do think the, what you can see in that example is the, the way in which the industry works uh, prioritises things to some extent other than health. So um, I, I think uh, there are groups very vulnerable to ill health who paradoxically also have poorer access often. So I, I would nominate those two. Of course, there's also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, particularly in remote areas of Australia. Um, and, and, you know, then there are culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Uh, we are a very multicultural society. Uh, to some extent, you see that reflected also in our healthcare providers uh, and registered practitioners, um, probably in some areas of health more than others. Uh, but they are also, uh, I would put into often a, a vulnerable group, particularly where language is a barrier to properly either explaining or understanding health conditions.
Although the policy directions highlight the paramount focus on patient safety, I think it's also important to remember as, uh, that we also have a set of workforce objectives as well. And these are also important in the way that we think about patient safety in the national scheme, because at the end of the day, we actually want all Australians to have access to safe, high quality health professions, particularly in rural and remote areas. So I think the scheme also has a very important focus on making sure that we've got a sustainable, accessible workforce that is safe in the delivery of care. And, and are there any steps we've taken, um, Martin, to start to interact with those groups? One of the things that's really important for us in how we engage with these vulnerable communities is first of all, to make sure they have a voice in the work of the scheme. So we're looking very actively at how we can make sure that through uh, involvement in boards and committees, through advisory groups that we've got and the like, that we've got um, those voices coming into the picture as well. And one part of the policy direction we've also got from ministers is to make sure for example, when we're consulting on new guidance or new standards or new codes and guidelines, that we actively work with representatives and members of those vulnerable groups to, to get their feedback and input into what we're proposing in terms of those policies. I think there's also some quite practical things we can do. Like, for example, I, you know, at the moment, the majority, the vast majority of the information we publish about our work is in one language, English. So I think we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we think about making uh, material available in different languages, even when people contact us, making sure that they've got ready and easy access to interpreter services, um, and and you know, and just that you know that what we're doing is speaking to them in their language and in a way that is meaningful for their communities. So we've had an unpredictable year, all of us, in 2020. Uh, what do you see, either of you, as some of the both the challenges and the opportunities that? will emerge for opera in 2021 and beyond that? COVID-19's reminded us all how much we rely on safe health practitioners at the front line to look after us all. And so I think one of the big areas of focus for us next year will be around mental health, both the mental health impacts of COVID-19, but actually the mental health impacts of lockdown particularly in places like Melbourne and Victoria. So I think one of the areas of focus in all of our work is to make sure that we are redoubling our efforts to really be sensitive to some of those mental health issues. We know already, for example, that when a practitioner is subject to a notification uh, or, a, or a concern being raised about that practice, that can be an extraordinarily, extraordinarily stressful event for that person. And I think what we can expect that some of that will be heightened by some of the mental health concerns that are arising from COVID-19. So I think that that focus on how we continue to humanise and really um, uh, communicate well with people who are subject to our repetitive processes is a really important um, priority for us in the coming year. You know, one of the things that happened for all of us in different ways in COVID and APRA was no exception, was a whole lot of traditional boundaries dissolved. We, we because we had to do things, we did them. You know, if we, if you told us we were going to get up a sub register of health professionals in the space of two months um, or thereabouts, we would have said fraught with risk, can't be done, will take a couple of years. Um, and of course, it's, it's a bit the difference, isn't it, between wartime and peacetime. So in wartime, you do things because you can and there's more permission to take risks. Although I have to say, as we did that, we were incredibly mindful of mitigating and managing risks. 
Um, so I don't think it has to turn you into daredevils, but it does make you realise that things you take as, as clear and unmovable structures and boundaries and processes and procedures can actually be questioned and changed. The world is more fluid under certain circumstances. And that there's lots of things in healthcare that uh, where we're always being asked to be more fluid. I, I remember sitting early on in this role, uh, sitting through a discussion about scope of practice. Um, so there are many of the professions that regularly want to change scope of practice. Um, we think of a doctor doing this and a nurse doing that and a dentist doing this, but the reality is those scopes of practice move around and change and broaden and expand. And I think, um, I think it opens up this way of operating more potential to try and keep boundaries a bit more fluid and understand that things can be challenged and changed. I also think one of our big challenges, um, a lot of what we've made work, we made work because we were all in the same position, or certainly in Victoria we were, um, but, but we were all in the same position. The virus was everybody's enemy and it was everywhere. It was just in some places more than others. As we go back to a more, you know, normal way of operating, if we end up with a hybrid of some people at home, some people in the office, people with different mixtures, that won't automatically work well. We will have to work to make it work well because um, it just will create new inequities and new, new um, pros and cons. And the same will be true, I think, of telehealth uh, and other virtual ways of delivering healthcare. There will be some things practitioners have learned that they want to continue doing and they'll have good reason for that. And some patients, and members of the public will like that, but some won't, and some will feel uh, excluded and will feel uh, that access is cut back. So we can't assume because things worked well in a crisis that they all automatically work well when the crisis is over. And I think we have to be quite thoughtful, quite deliberate, quite considered and quite evidence-based about what that right mix of virtual and actual presence is looks like to work well. So I think this conversation has highlighted the importance of patients and the public feeling safe and being safe when they engage with a health practitioner and the challenges of ensuring safety while providing fairness and humane processes for the more than 760,000 registered health practitioners regulated by OPERA and the national boards. So thank you to my guests, Jill Callister, and Martin Fletcher for your commitment to public safety and your time today to talk about this important topic. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Susan. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any feedback or questions, please email communications at opera.gov.au. To hear more episodes of our podcast, please subscribe to Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts or just search for Taking Care on the Opera website.